Opening my eyes, I see a chess game in front of me, but my pieces are almost all gone. My king is in checkmate. I have no moves to make. Everyone's acting like there's nothing abnormal about this, but I'm pretty sure this fucking game was rigged before we even started. My name is Gabe Wells, and this is the Saturated Life Podcast. Episode number 13, with the graffiti artist and painter, Stephen Daly. I moved to Los Angeles in 2000, but then I moved away in, um, in 2003, I believe it was. I moved to Orange County, and then I met my, the, the girl I'm with now, and then we both decided we were going to move back to LA and do the, and you know, all or nothing for the art thing. That's great. And so what is it about the Los Angeles art scene that you like so much? There's just so many opportunities to do art. And I think that the most exciting stuff is coming out of here. And for me, it was when I was growing up, it was, you know, your Mark Rydens, your Robert Williams, your Michael Hussers. Those are the guys that I looked up to. You know what I mean? I do. I love LA artwork. That's I'm you're preaching to the choir here. It's some of my favorite stuff as well. I mean, I lived in New York and I really liked the New York art scene too. But there's a lot of energy that happens in Los Angeles artwork. There's a lot of uh, like freeform type of creativity. There's a lot of more kind of academic approach and uh, a lineage kind of thing <laughs> happening in New York. Oh yeah, I can see that very much. So um, I can see that uh, for me too. Um, I started off in the graffiti art scene and I was doing a lot of graffiti. And at that time, this is where it, it was happening. The graffiti art scene in New York was kind of over. The guys who kind of pioneered that were like moving on to like Paris and, and Europe and stuff to sell their stuff over there, like scene and all those guys who I look up to. How long were you doing graffiti art? Like when did you start? I started, I started doing graffiti in 91 and, and believe it or not, this is going to sound crazy, but I, I lived in the same town as Jeff Soto. Me and Jeff Soto and this other guy, Max, we all formed a crew called CIA until we found out there was a CIA in New York that was like one of the beginning pioneers, which was like Dome D and, and all those guys. So we decided to change the name to uh, Bashers and we started Bashers Crew. And it literally started from a guy in our crew who was designated that to, to come up with a name for us because we were just kind of calling ourselves the five at that time. And, and uh, we, there was a guy in our crew named Asher and we gave him, it was his, we were, we were coming up with this mural we were going to do in Long Beach. And we told them, we told him, we were like, Hey, you have to come up with the name for the crew and write the name on the wall. So he came up with Basher because I think he just didn't think of anything. He was like, I'll just put a B in front of it in the back <laughs> wall. And that's just kind of how it happened. And, and, and because our name was so different than like a three-letter crew, you know, like NBK or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. I think that people really gravitated towards our our style of art. And us, uh, for, for me, and I'd say Max, too, we came from the skateboarding culture, not the graffiti the graffiti gang hip hop culture. So if um, we, st- I started tagging because we were hitting up the spots we were skating at and it all just kind of escalated because I had already been doing art since I was five years old. It was just kind of like a, 
uh, a natural progression into picking up a spray can and painting, you know. And did you just like did you tag or did you do the, like the more intricate kind of uh, graffiti work? I started, I started out in '91. I started out tagging the freeways and um, doing throw ups and stuff. But I I started when I met Jeff Soto and I saw what he was doing. Um, I was like, oh, I'm gonna do this. <laughs> and and actually, the main reason why I started doing pieces is a friend of mine. Uh, we'll call him Riot because he he's probably an outlaw still, but, uh, well, uh, he, he stole a book from Barnes and Noble for me called Subway Art. Okay. And when I, and that's from New York. And when I opened that book, I was just blown away by what you could do with a spray can. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and coming from the like skateboarding punk rock scene, we were just writing crap on the wall, you know, like our <laughs> favorite band and like, you know, S the world. And you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. We were teenage angst, and when I saw you could do, like my friend, my friend Ryan, he used to come over and take my paint tube and go right on the seven a Seven Eleven wall with my paint tubes. Like society's gone mad, and you know, just like all this like uh, punk stuff. Yeah. And uh, and when I when he, when he gave me this book, he was like, oh, I think you'll dig this, and he had you know he had ripped it off. I was just blown away. I I closed my eyes and I would just see those colors. You know what I mean? Like, it was just, because at that time I was basically doing like, you know, black and white drawings and inks and a little bit of color here and there, but, you know, that punk rock palette, you know? Yeah. And then when when I saw this, it just opened my mind and, and it literally changed who I was. Like, it changed the person I was and I started drawing B-boy characters and letters and, you know what I mean? It just kind of, I, I, was, I was trying to imitate what I was seeing in New York at that time and that allowed me to meet a whole onslaught of this underground culture which was graffiti art but i think now nowadays kids have such more of an outlet to to do it i mean it's so much more um accepted now than it was when when i was doing it like up until about 2005 i couldn't even there was no gallery that would show graffiti yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. They were just like, this is, this is kid stuff, mm-hmm. you know? And now it's like the major commodity out here in L.A. Like, and it's crazy. You'll see all these old guys from the 80s that are coming out of retirement, like Risk and all those dudes, and, and they're making a living at graffiti. It's, it's kind of awesome. It's great. But, uh, yeah. But, but like, what I was saying was, like, when I was doing it, there was no internet. There was no Twitter. We were too poor to have a camera. You know what I mean? It was, I do. It was, yeah. You did it because you loved it, and then but now it's like a completely different scene. You do a piece on a wall, you take a photo of it. It's got one thousand people seeing it instantly, or how many ever many followers you have, you know, or likes, and it's just it's a completely different world. So it's not sneaking out of your bedroom at three o'clock in the morning, hoping your mom doesn't see you, and <laughs> painting the town black literally till six a.m. That's what you did. Back. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's a completely different thing now. Now it's like this, like it accepted, almost like you know, emo culture, where people are going out and and doing walls and and copying each other. And when I grew up, if you like copied somebody, that beat the shit out of you. You know what I mean? But now with, the, now with the internet, everybody pretty much has the same style. You know, and it, it's uh, it's. Or, or they derive from a style. I'm not saying everybody paints the same, but they derive from a 
from what they see on the internet, what they what they see in Germany or what they see here. If you if you got a German magazine back then in the nineties of graffiti, you were just like, What is this? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like now it's just like the three D lettering is like everywhere. So it's not like a big deal. But when yeah. we saw Lumen and when we saw Dime, we were just like, What the fuck? You can do this with graffiti, you know? <laughs> and did you ever get caught for when you were graffiti, writing graffiti or whatever? Actually, I, I was arrested three times. Oh, shit. Three times. Uh, one time, and, and the funniest thing is I never caught, got caught doing it illegally. I only got caught doing it legally, which I doesn't just, make any sense, but no. I'll explain. <laughs> it doesn't uh, make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what the cops would do is we had, we had, in the 90s, we had these designated walls where you knew it was legal to paint. Okay. Mm. It wasn't like a nice area. Graffiti was never like now you'll see it on, you know, in Times Square or, or in downtown or, you know, Melrose and stuff like that here in LA. But back then there was these weird, like behind the railroad tracks wall that this guy owns the factory. And he was like, you can paint here, you know? Mm -hmm. So you would go there, you'd get a permission slip from him and you would paint. Well, the first time I got, the first time I got caught, I was painting behind there, and they popped me for walking across the railroad tracks because you couldn't what? you couldn't go in through the factory. You had to go in through the back, and because the railroad tracks were back there, it's illegal to be on railroad tracks. So they got me for trespassing. What? And then the the second time I got there, I I got busted. I forgot my permit, even though I went in and got the lady. They still arrested me. And oh. then there was like, yeah, there, then there was like we called them yards. There was these yards where you would like go paint, and you heard it was chill and, and legal, and nobody cared. And and I went and did it. it was a place called Soto Yard, and the LA um, Graffiti Task Force uh, busted me and did a whole thing. And and that's when I changed my graffiti name to Stephen, and I just started writing Stephen everywhere because I was just like, if I'm gonna go down for this, and I pretty much had decided at that time, and I was gonna do it for the rest of my life. Hence, I'm not doing it that much anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, well, I'm going to go down for this. I'm going down for it for my name, not for some made-up name. And oh. that was the basic reason why mm-hmm. I started doing it, writing my own name. So how did you transition from doing graffiti work to – did you start with acrylics or did you, did you start with oils or what did you transition into? I started with acrylics. Acrylics just made sense to me. Um, I had always painted and drawn – I, I kind of spent these like two different – a dichotomy of like two different lives. I would paint and draw at home and then I would, and I would do something completely different with my graffiti. So I was trying to do like this fine art with my art and then going out to the wall, I would do, you know, this hip hop, you know, letter forms and, and, you know, it was still kind of dark because that's how I tend to draw, but it was more of a graffiti culture type art. And when I was doing the stuff I was doing at home was like satiric and I was trying to say stuff about the government and religion and all that stuff. And, uh, so it, they two didn't just melt. So didn't meld. So when, when I realized that my graffiti wouldn't translate to the canvas, because I still believe this to this day is that graffiti doesn't belong in a gallery. It belongs on the streets because it's not the same. When you see a, a, a graffiti art piece, on a canvas, it just looks like a watered-down yeah. hot topic of graffiti. And and basically, the reason why people started doing that is so they could appease the collectors, which are, you know, we 
as as artists, we paint for rich people. So they wanted a piece of that graffiti. So you compromised what you actually did on the street and put it down into this rectangle or this square, you know, 36 by 48 or whatever, when you would paint it seven feet long and in, in, in a story and a half high before. Yeah, so I totally like- agree with that. Because I remember when I lived in Brooklyn, just I, I loved uh, like just walking my dog and all of a sudden you'd see that this like 20 foot high uh, graffiti work and it's just amazing it's powerful and it just changes it cha- it changed my dog walk all of a sudden I'd be like oh shit I'm in a gallery look at this this is great yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a spectator sport I will have to say that like um, but for me like I have done graffiti shows in the past but I I never felt like what I was doing for the show was what I would do on a wall you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was always like the bastardization of, of <laughs> the energy and, 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 and amount of work you do because a graffiti piece is just an immense amount of energy. You're, you know, there's a physical aspect, there's the performance art aspect, there's the mental aspect, and then there's the, you know, skill and technical ability aspect. So it's all five of these things coming together to make a great piece of art. And then when you do it in a, in a gallery sense, you're like, oh, I have this canvas and the canvas doesn't really soak up the paint. So I have to change the way I paint and it's going to take longer and I'm going to have to change my technique. So what it's actually doing is it's completely changing what you're actually known for and making it completely different on canvas. When did you just stop doing graffiti and just really focus on, on your painting? In 2004, I ran into a comic book artist named Roman Burge. I don't know if you know him. No, I uh, too. I'll check it out. He, he does this goth, little gothic comic called Lenore. And uh, he saw my work and what I was doing on the street. And he, he basically, I mean, I didn't listen, but he basically told me I needed to stop doing graffiti and do more of what I was doing at home. And, and I was, and, you know, of course, I was just calling, you don't know what you're talking about. You, you're gothic and you're comic. And you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm kind of like headstrong. But then he offered me a children's book. And he was like, I got this idea for a children's book. And if you want to illustrate it, I would love to have you illustrate it. And I was just like blown away that he wanted me to do this. Oh, wow. And then, and then we, uh, we went in and we t- sat down with Dark Horse Comics. And we sat down with Disney and we sat down with uh, Slave Labor and they all wanted it. But I wanted Dark Horse Comics because I, that was the comic, that was the comics I grew up loving and, and I knew the game and, and they, they were just like, whatever you want, we'll put tinfoil in it, we'll take bites out of the page, you know, whatever you want, hardbound. And I was just like, we're going with them. And, uh, and I didn't realize what I was in for. (laughs) <laughs> with the children's book it took four years of my life to complete wow and and, and on a very minimal advance uh, god bless my girlfriend she uh she totally uh you know took the bills for that four years while i was working on this comp this children's book and uh it, it was a big it was a big step for me and the problem was i couldn't do graffiti anymore it was it i just didn't have time so why did it take four years? What was it? Was it everything? Was it all painted? Every every page I would do would have to go to Roman, and then he'd have to uh, approve it. And then from Roman, it would go to to Dark Horse, and then they would have to approve oh, it. Yeah. 
and you know, it was 48 hand-painted paintings wow. um, <laughs> of, his, of his children's book. And, it, I mean, it probably would have took, I mean, I was doing other things at the time. I wasn't just doing the children's book, but I had to make money, too, while I was doing this children's book, you know? Mm-hmm. So for four years, I couldn't work on it every single day and on the minimal advance they gave us. And then um, it just took four years for it to come out. I mean, I could have probably finished it in in a year and a half, but because of the lawyers and the waiting for approvals and, and all that stuff, it just spanned out that whole time. So in 2008, Halloween 2008, it launched and it sold out and it was, it was just a glorious occasion. It's awesome. What's it called? It's called It Ate Billy on Christmas. It, it Ate Billy on Christmas? Yeah. Oh man, I'm gonna check it out. Like, what age? What age appropriate? I have a, a son that's a year and a half old, so I don't know. If... Dark children. It's a dark children's story. It, it's meant to be funny, and it's basically about this creature that lives in the well, and he comes out on Christmas to get <laughs> food, and he finds himself um, becoming a pet to this girl who wanted a puppy, and it's this ugly creature, and she doesn't care because she wanted a puppy so bad that she just keeps this. Ugly ass creature. I like it. I like it so far. I'm, I'm, I'm into it. I'm, is it still available? Can you get it? Yeah, yeah. You can get it on Amazon.com. And then, and then while I was working on that, I got Slave Labor um, asked me to do another comic book with Roman called Peter the Pirate Squid. So I actually ended up doing two children's books at the same time. And I, I still went and painted pieces like once a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I just, I, I. I just told myself, like, you're pretty much done with graffiti at the moment, you know? Yeah, so that's so, awesome that you got to work. I, I was a Dark Horse fan uh, when I used to collect comic books, um, you know, back in, when I was, like, a teenager into my early 20s a little bit. But uh, what um, yeah. do you do? You actually remember some of the Dark Horse comics uh, you read back? Or do you still read comics? I do still read comics. I don't collect as much as I did anymore. I used to have, like, 10 boxes. Yeah. And I've gotten... <laughs> I'll find it down to like two large boxes now. That's what I did too. And I've, got, I've got my like, you know, my original image stuff like wild cats and, yeah, and, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, all the wild storm stuff yep. and like Max and spawn and Dude. all, I kept all that stuff. How awesome was um, Max? Oh, it was Max. That, oh man, what's Sam, his name? Keith. What was the name? Keith? Sam, Keith. Sam Keith. That's what, it, oh man, he was, he did and a great job. He was job. brilliant. He was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I was I was a big fan of his. I I think I forget. I don't know if I finished the series. I don't think I did finish the series. I think I it, it was still going on when I kind of stopped reading comic books. Yeah. Did you actually finish it? Did you find out what the hell the whole thing was about? Um, I think he. I think if I remember correctly, I ha- I, I got up to about sixty. I think that's when it stopped, right? I don't know. I'd have to check. I've been actually thinking about going back and 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 finishing some of the comic book series I'd never finished. Um, like, that would be awesome. yeah, yeah. Cause I was really into a lot of them and I would just, I remember when I was in high school, um, just saving up any lunch money I had just to buy comic books. <laughs> I figured I just wouldn't eat lunch yeah. so I could buy comic books afterwards. <laughs> That's awesome. You got to work with, with Disney for a little bit too. Did I read that you, you were, uh, commissioned to redesign Mickey Mouse or something? Yeah, I was commissioned to redesign Mickey Mouse. That was the first, well, actually, no, the first thing that. I got contacted for was Pirates of the Caribbean three. They um 
they asked me to do uh, T-shirt merchandise for uh, juniors, so like little kids. Um, so I I, uh, I did a bunch of skulls and and then Pirates of the Caribbean three. I don't remember. I don't know if you've seen it. No. It was it was all about like Asian pirates. So <laughs> they hired me to do a bunch of like dragons and and skulls with like Fu Manchus and and stuff like that. Okay, that's cool. And that, yeah, it was a, it was a really good gig. And uh, and then after that, um, this thing kind of came up. You could it's still up uh, block twenty eight dot com. Okay. And hired what was it? It was me, Crayola, Greg, Greg Crayola, Simpkins. Mere One and Slick, I believe, and David Flores. It was me, him, and Dick, and we did this thing called Block 28. And it was this, they had us redesign Mickey in a graffiti way. And um, they did T-shirts and pillows and hats and all kinds of stuff. And um, that was my, like, first uh, first contracts and stuff working with them uh, on, a, on an artist level and not a freelance graphic designer level that's really then, cool. um, yeah. yeah and it, 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 was, it was a massive event it was like invite only and it, it was really 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 cool and you can still see event pictures and stuff online if, if you want i just went but, to um, it. yeah there, there were, this is i asked because it was so crazy just seeing your artwork and then reading that you were hired by disney i'm like that does that doesn't seem to go together <laughs> how does that work oh, no. <laughs> It's funny, and then from that, it just escalated. They, I did this girl I know that I used to date. She, um, she, uh, we became friends, and then she um, had contacted me to do a piece about getting older as a woman. And um, at that time, I was really into like uh, royalty and and pearls and crowns and and stuff like that. So I started painting this girl, this woman with a cracked face and a crown on. And she loved it and, you know, of course, paid for the the commission. And Disney saw it on my site and they're like, we want to buy this. And I, I basically told them, like, hey, it's not for sale. Like, it was a commission piece. Well, they're like, well, we think it looks like the, the Evil Queen from Snow White. And I was like, oh, wow, that's awesome, you know? I was like, I have a really high-res digital uh, file of it. And they're like, let's make print. And then we made the print and it sold out, like, immediately. You couldn't find it anywhere. And that That's just awesome. launched the whole Disney career after that. that is and so then wild. I, then they would, every time they needed something edgy or evil, they would call me up. And you and painted then, Boba Fett too, right? For for yeah, and then that, that that led to the licenses that that printed the uh, the Disney stuff to ask me to do Star Wars stuff. And then I did the Boba Fett, and George Lucas bought the original. Oh and shit! From, That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, and then from that he uh, he's bought everything I've done since then. What? Really? Star Wars, like, yeah. Star Wars stuff. Okay. Oh wow. So yeah. you, you're a big Star Wars fan then? Oh yeah, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Yeah. When I got that job, they were like, "Hey, would you be interested in doing some Star Wars art?" I was like, "Yeah, um, yeah, sure, yeah, I think so." And inside my body was just I was just like peeing my pants. That's like, awesome. yeah, I'm doing Star Wars. Did you just, <laughs> you know? could you sleep the night that you knew George Lucas was owning one of your paintings? I had a smile on my <laughs> face for like a week. <laughs> I, I have a lot of peers that do amazing stuff. Like, you know, like Greg Crayola Simpkins, he has like sellout shows yeah. all the time. Like, he, he's just a phenomenal artist. And, 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 um, 
and then uh, I always see them, you know, just skyrocketing through the sky. And then when that happened, I was like, I was like, oh, finally, you have something that nobody else has. George <laughs> was the collector. <laughs> That's great. You hang with some great artists there in L.A. Um, what is- it's all through graffiti. I mean, well, you know, some of the fine artists I know, I know from meeting in the art world. But like Greg, I know from graffiti. He was in the same crew as me. Um, like Jeff Soto, I know from graffiti. Who else do I know from graffiti? Guys like you know Slick and Mir and all those dudes. Do you still curate the the gag me with a tune show? Yeah, we're doing that right now. Right now, we've been working on that for the last month. It's uh, next month on the fourth, and I'm actually painting the painting for it right now as I'm talking to you. <laughs> it was, so tell me a little bit about the gag me with a tune. Like, how did that start, and what's the um, like? What's the whole idea behind it? The whole idea behind it was, like I was telling you about, in the late 2000s, there was all these shows going on, and um, I was just kind of sick of doing all these shows, like a video game show and uh, a <laughs> man show and, and all that, and um, Meltdown Gallery out here asked me to curate a show, like a, uh, a themed group show, and I said, well, if I did one, I would want to do one that I would that I would want to do and that meant something to me. And those cartoons were a huge influence on me when I was growing up. And, um, and I, I told them about it and they loved it. And then I was talking with Nathan Cabrera. He's another artist out here. I don't know if you know who he is. Mm-hmm. He, had a, he had the cover of Juxtaposed a couple of times. He, um, I, I was like, I'm trying to come up with a name. And he was like, giving me these names and I'm like, how about Gabby at the two? And he's like, no, that's horrible. And I'm like, that's it. That's the name. <laughs> so we went with that name and it, it, it blew up and it, we're on the fifth year now and it doesn't seem to go away. <laughs> it's a good idea. I love that theme. Um, okay. Like how do you curate a show? Like what's the, what's the process and all of that? It's a freaking nightmare. Uh, uh, I'll tell you this, the closer you are to your, your, your artist, like if you're friends with them, the more they'll try to get away with. So <laughs> I'll have people showing up the day, the night of the show, like two hours before the show, like, here's my piece. And you're like, wow, dude, everything was hung two days ago. You know, like <laughs> and when I first started doing this, I would be on the phone just cussing people out. Like, why is it your piece here? You know, and just getting crazy. And then, uh, it wasn't until recently that I realized like, well, if you know, if they really want to show, then they'll be here and they'll piece will be on time. And, and you, you know, I started working with more professional people like house party or his stuff is always there packaged, you know, bubble wrapped, ready to go. And, you know, like when I worked with Crayola, he actually drove the piece to me like two weeks before the show. And I just started realizing that certain people have more of a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? More of a professional um, aspect to how they conduct their business than your, you know, your friends and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Do you have any like? Do you have any tips or which? What's kind of like your process with acrylic uh, that comes out looking so smooth, <laughs> like you, the, the way your paintings do? Oh, okay. Um, you're taking all my secrets, huh? 
Um, <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to if you want to. <laughs> um, no, um, I started working on wood. Um, I, I, I still will work on canvas every once in a while, especially if it's like all I have in the house. Um, but uh, I, I still will work on it. But I, I fell in love with wood after, when did I, when did I start working on wood? I was working on this Geisha Girl piece. You may have seen it. It's in my archives. And um, I had done this drawing, and a friend of mine, his name's Gearbox. I was at his uh, I was at his house, and he had this just scrap piece of wood sitting there, and it looked like a church steeple. And I was like, "Oh, I, I want that. I'm gonna paint a girl committing suicide on it." <laughs> so I, and it was like off-centered, and it, it it was just like this found piece of wood, and I was. I was pretty poor at this time, you know, and I was just like, I would like dumpster dive for like broken pieces of wood and stuff, you know, yeah. and I was like yeah. painting on them and like, creating these like assemblages with all this work and stuff. And, and at that, that time it was kind of like, kind of in to like do things that were different, you know? And uh, so I started like, I started finding like pieces of wood and people would find like apple crates and bring them to me and stuff like that. And, <laughs> I started painting on those and, and, um, I used oil at that time, but I, I was using so much, you know, I was doing the graffiti so much, the oil was took too long to dry and you had to mix all these alchemy things together to make it like, you know, linseed sand and, and, and lean and, and all that, you know, to make it work for you. Yeah. And I just wanted, I wanted to have that same feeling that I had when I was at the wall where I could just, I could just paint. You know what I mean? I didn't have to do an underpainting and then wait for that underpainting to dry and then build up 14 layers. And you know what I mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. I just, to, I just wanted to paint. So I started messing around with acrylic on wood and it just, it just kind of made sense to me. And, um, basically what I do is I'll, now I'll, I'll go and I, I, I buy pre-made panels like from like Swain's or Dick Blake or whatever your favorite art store is. They'll usually have pre-made panels. I buy the raw birch. I don't buy the ones that are already um, gessoed. Okay. I tend to, I tend to find that I don't like the gesso they use, or they'll put like a texture in the gesso, and I I don't like that. So what I usually do is I'll I'll buy the I'll I'll buy whatever panel size I need, and then I'll go from there and um, I'll bring it home, and I usually get like gesso. Like I'm looking for it right now. Um. It's just like artist acrylic gesso. Mm -hmm. That's what I get. And then I'll do one thin layer and let that dry. And then I sand that down. And then I'll do another layer, let that dry, and I'll sand that down. And I do another layer, let that dry, and I sand that down. I do it four times. Okay. And then the last layer I leave um, rough. I don't sand it. And then, um, and then I'll start doing another. I've actually took – now I actually go back to the – oil style but i use it on my acrylics that way so what i'll do is i'll do a, a full umber underpainting in acrylic okay and then and then i'll let that dry usually I'll, I'll take a day preparation a day layout and a day of uh underpainting like a really rendered underpainting depending on how much time i have sometimes i'll do a really fast underpainting you know what i mean yeah so um uh, basically what i what i'll do is i'll um I'll do that underpainting and then I'll start blocking in my midtones and darks after that. And then from the midtones and darks, I'll just start adding light, lighter pigments to it and just start building, you know? Okay. 
do you just water down the acrylic paints or do you actually use some yeah, kind of water? I just use water. Yeah, just just use water? water. Okay. yeah uh, no medium. Um, I do like to, now I have found out that I do like to work wet on wet with acrylics. So what I'll do is I'll put a lot of water on the brush, like load the brush up with a lot of water and then I'll mix on the, on the, um, on the wood instead of mixing on my palette. Okay. So, and that, that, that gives me that oil refined look, you know? Yeah, yeah, because I actually didn't even realize it was acrylic until I, you know, I started reading them recently, and I was like, because I, I just assumed they're oil because it has that smooth look. But you, um, like, I think who else surprised me with acrylic was uh, I don't even know if I can pronounce his last name, but Todd is it Todd Score or is Todd Shore? Todd Shore. Shore. Todd Shore. Yeah, yeah. He, I, I just found out he uses acrylic, and that kind of blew me away. That guy's a master, man. Yeah, is he? <laughs> I was blown away. I just totally assumed it was oil. I mean, if you can get really good acrylic now, I use a I use a brand called Nova Color. Okay. And it, it's like liquid. It doesn't come out like toothpaste. It's like liquid in a jar, and I get it by the quart. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So, and you're pretty much self-taught artist as well, aren't you? I went. I had a, a few years of junior college, um, and I went to i I transferred to Art Center as a junior, and um, I uh, hated it, and I dropped out. What did you hate about it? They were trying to teach me to be, to be my, my friends and uh, people I knew who were already working in the art world. I, uh, I had a, an illustration class, and they were trying to teach me to paint like Barry McGee. <laughs> and you know, I was like, I can't paint like Barry McGee. Like, I come from that world, and like I told you before, I'll get my ass kicked. <laughs> yeah. I, I just didn't like where they were going with art school at that time. And um, no offense to anybody who went to art center, that it just didn't work for me. And I just felt like a lot of the things that were coming out of art center at that time were very, very cookie cutter, like this cookie cutter style. Yeah. And I just didn't want that style. And I, you know, and I paid the price for that. It took a long time for people to catch on to my artwork. And I probably should have just finished school and then I would have shown out any gallery I wanted in LA, but I decided like I always do, I would take the hard route on everything. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you, what do you think was the, uh, I don't know, maybe best tool or, or advice or something that helped you progress to where you're at? Like, you know, what I learned, what I learned from art school and what I will say was great about art school from the brief time I was there, the half the semester I was there was the work. It was all about the work, just hard work. And, you know, and I would always, I think a lot of people are like this too. I'd always come from this school where I thought you got discovered. You know, you did, you did a little bit of work here and there. And then somebody was like, oh, you're a genius. And then they were like, here's the gallery. And it's a lot. <laughs> it's that's like a common myth though, isn't it? Like I grew up the same way. Like it's somehow you just get found. It just happens. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It's, you, once you get older too, you truly appreciate like when you read about the people that really are successful, it's the amount of work and, and just dedication they put into work it. And dedication and, and, and sacrifice. Yeah. You have to be willing to eat top ramen and, and, and you know, to do what you love, you know, exactly. and I wouldn't change it, man. I love what I do. You know, my girlfriend might not because she wants, you know, new shoes all the time, but <laughs> you know, I love what I do and I would never change it. How long have you been just, just painting? Like, like when did you just transition to being a completely pro professional painter? As a professional painter, I've been, I've been painting as a professional painter since I'm going to say 2005. 
uh, but there's always a dichotomy, like I was telling you before. I, I still have to do T-shirt designs and, and commercial stuff to pay the bills, you know? And and I, was, I just did an interview with Just the Post today, and they were asking me about why I do so much commercial work. And I said, because for me, it, it's not, it's always going to be an uphill battle for me. It's not like there's some people, they get to just paint all day, and that's amazing, and I'm so jealous of them. But for me, because I work in... I paint what I want to paint and I don't paint the same thing over and over and I don't have a niche and each, each show I do is like an album to me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's something that I have to get out that I have to do the commercial stuff to support that. Because although I do sell painting, I, I don't have sold out shows of, you know, of, of Bible prophecy paintings. You know what I mean? <laughs> or, 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 um, my anti-Mason show I had in, in 2011, you know? Really? You so had an anti-Mason show? What is it? It's called Covenant. Tell me about that. What's the anti-Mason anti show all about? Well, um, it's, it's kind of a long story, but in two, 2002, I started getting into conspiracy theories. I kind yeah. of felt like something was wrong with the world. No. And, Why would you think uh, that? <laughs> right? And... And I had heard all these stories from a friend of mine, and and I kind of just blew them off. But then I started seeing things. I started seeing things in the media, and I started seeing these symbols everywhere, on churches and on the Vatican and in in Washington and and anywhere in your city. And and I started just wondering, like, hey, there's there's these group of men that are meeting together to do these secret rituals. How bizarre is that? It's very bizarre. And some yeah. of them are our politicians and some of them claim to be Christians and, and, and all this stuff. So I was just like, I really have to look into this. So I started really small and I just started with the Masons and I didn't get very far at all because they swear by their bowels being torn out and, and all that stuff. So I just started doing what anybody would do as I just started looking at books and started looking around and, and, and meeting other people who were into it. And basically I found out that it was like crazy nefarious and they do these like crazy rituals and, and, you know, take their pants off and put a noose around their neck and there's just all this crazy stuff. Right. And I was like, why is nobody ever painted about this? There is paintings with Mason stuff in them. See like the, the symbolism and stuff. But I was like, why has nobody ever done like a, a satire on it? So I just started researching for 10 years. From 2001 to 2011, I did research on everything. And I found that most of the conspiracy theories were based in truth. Some of them are fantastical. And a lot of the conspiracy theories always try to tie in aliens and God, you know, and, mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Lizard but people. The, the core truth was that we have these men who run our world, who belong to these organizations that go and dress up in masks and, and, and dress like women and stuff and dance around and do these, what they call plays, but it's not real, it's plays. But I'm like, they're still doing it. And they're still, and like, there's all these Babylon gods and stuff that they pray to and stuff. And I was just like, I was just like, well, even if they say it's not real and that it's fun, they're still praying to these Babylon gods. Yeah. You know? What's that grove, Orange? Is it Orange Grove in California? Amy's Grove. 
What is Bohemian it? Bohemian Grove. Bohemian Grove. That's what it is. Bohemian Grove. Yeah, we're yeah. the video. I think it was Alex Jones, which I am not a big Alex Jones fan. I, I, I mean, under the impression that he's a an agent of disinformation. But, uh, <laughs> but I think it was shot by him. I, I think so. But it really showed this whole huge ceremony that was pretty dark yeah, and the, scary looking. The cremation of care. That's what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so basically, La Luz de Jesus approached me about doing a solo show. And I knew Matt was into that stuff, and I pitched him the idea, and they're like, let's do it. <laughs> and so and he had 27 paintings from everything from Jobulon to a cable's toe to the Maha Bone. To, I, I just went and I just took all their words and all their rituals, and I just made fun of them. And, and they bought them. Awesome. Thinking that they were, at, they thinking that they were pro Mason. I had 27 Masons show up to my my show really? and give me handshakes and call me brother and fellow Holy traveler and, and yeah. And I had one guy came up. His name is Sean Fernald. He came up to me and said that Jabulon wasn't real and that he had never heard of it. And then he went back to his lodge that night. And then I ran into him at the gallery again, and he told me that it was absolutely real, <laughs> and that it was above his pay grade. Javilon. I don't know what that is either. What What is Javilon? Javilon, Javilon is a deity that they worship, and his he's a three-headed deity. You can see it in oh. my site. It's a cat, a frog, and, and like a de- like a Judeo-Christian god. Yeah, just looked it up. See it right now. Yeah. I see all yours and other but versions as well. So also what I found out is the Shriners, the guys who do all these good works and good deeds all over the town, that you can't become a Shriner until you've gone through all the levels of masonry, including Jobulot. So I thought it would be funny to have them in their stupid little cars under this giant god <laughs> in, their, in their regalia, you yeah. know? Yeah. And it sold, that was the first piece to go. <laughs> really? <laughs> so... Man, so these 27 Masons showed up and praised your work, yeah. which you considered satirical, but they considered, they didn't see it as satirical. They just, they saw they it as praise awesome. and they bought them. I, even had, I did wow. this, I don't know if it's on my site, but I think it is. I did this, um, it's like a portrait of like a class and they're all skeletons and there's like blood raining and there's a checkered floor okay. and they're all in their regalia with all their symbols and all that. And I was basically saying, like, these are the men that create the bloodshed in the world, that create wars and make money off of wars and all this under this weird-ass club that they all belong to. And the the um, Masonic Temple of Los Angeles came to purchase it. <laughs> and, and the only reason why they did it, is what the gallery told me, is because they didn't have room for it because it was too big. Oh, wow. That is so funny. So awesome if it would have been hanging in there oh, that would have been so good that's so good that's amazing yeah. dude that's an amazing story I didn't realize you did that that's so cool but there's another one that I read a book by Jeff Charlotte called The Family and The Family is kind of like another one of those more uh, fundamental Christian kind of secret organizations though that also work in, in manipulating the political system I've heard of The Family before there's a guy named I think his name's William Schnobel or something like that Okay. He used to be a part of it now, and he's a um, a born again Christian now, and so he denounces it. But his stories are out there. Like he had his sex. It's funny because he'll preach the way, which is uh, 
the Jesus sect, the Yeshua sect, and he'll preach that, but and 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 he'll talk about you know being Christ died for our sins and all that stuff. But then when but out of nowhere he'll just start talking about how he had sex with a demon and flew to Uranus and um, yeah, and, and it's just and he and he was a vampire and a witch and all this stuff and while he was part of that family thing. So <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, so if you're like, what the hell? So there's a lot of people out there to sell books, too. That's one thing you got to understand. Like, mm-hmm. if you listen to, like, Coast to Coast or hear some, like, crackpot on there or whatever, That's... Uh, there, might be, there may be some truth in it, but uh, the main reason why a lot of these people are into it is to make money. Yeah, that's why I can't get into reading too much about it because, but the thing is, I wanted to like kind of just say that it seems pretty obvious that there are a lot of hidden forces working that aren't talked about in media where it's it's kind of a scary thing. I mean, even like, like the Federal Reserve, all this stuff is just really kind of freaky when you when you start really delving it into all it. Kind of, it all kind of seems like revelation, huh? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it's all like revelation. I don't know. I mean, how how is it re- like revelation? Because I'm not Christian. I didn't really grow up in, well, with any religion. Really. I I that was what my last uh, show was about. Um, uh, what was my last show? Melchizedek. The last show I had. All those like uh, Christian paintings you saw on my site. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was all about those stories that I heard as a kid. And basically, um, at the end of time, there will be this major world power that comes to light which is what it seems like we're going for. And I kind of think it's going to be the UN and America is going to fall America or whatever power, whatever is the major power at that time. Because one thing that uh, Western Christians get wrong is that they think that the Bible is about them, but we're only like 200 years old. And those countries are like thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. So like, America's a blip on the screen. I don't even think it's in the Bible. And all these Christians out here think are have like are super entitled to think they're going to get raptured and they're going to miss the tribulation and all. You know what I mean? All yeah. that. So, but uh, well, basically, what it says is that this major world power will come to to light. They'll outlaw religion all over the 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 earth, and they'll create this universal religion where basically all ideals lead to a universal God. So Buddhism, uh, Muslimism, Catholicism, uh, New Age stuff, the universe, atheists, all, all that stuff leads to one thing, and it's just this collective God, right? That's actually my whole so, belief system. Holy crap. Am I part of this? Am I part of, am yeah. I part of the dark side? Well, I, I mean, I could prove all that wrong. Buddha, uh, Buddhism is nothing like Christianity. No. Buddhism, you get rid of everything that is human in you, and and basically get rid of all of your emotions and stuff to be to become a god. You get rid of everything human above about you to become a god, and and that's what basically what masonry is all about is becoming your own god. But I, from my my research and stuff that I've done. I've basically realized that we don't deserve to be gods. We're not good beings. Nothing in us is innately good. I mean, I can't even keep my hand off my dick. You know what I mean? (laughs) You know what I mean? Yep. uh, But I don't think that's one thing when people tell me, well, I'm a good person. No, you're not. You're lying. You're not a good person because nobody is a good person. 
Yeah, people you that know? say they're good good people or really try to come off as like super happy good people are the people that scare me the most. Yeah, they're usually the ones with the darkest shadows. Mm-hmm. So, um, I once I realized that you know I'm I'm not innately good and I can't be a god and I'm if, if you if you look at the universe, there's 400 billion galaxies. And nowadays we live to be maybe 80. You know, mm-hmm. and. And if the universe is 400, 500 billion years old, we are, we're not even a blip on a computer screen. It's weird, right? So, yeah, yeah it, it, it doesn't make sense. So what does it all mean? Are we, if, the reason why I don't, I don't believe that we're biomechanical monkeys, that we're just these biomechanical machines, and that we evolved from, from monkeys and all that stuff is because that that makes no sense. Where would we get moral laws if we're all just animals? Where would moral laws come from? So wait, you don't believe you know in I mean? evolution? Like you don't believe that we like came from other primates? I I just don't believe that we are um, evolved beings because Dar- if you look at Darwin, he he was looking at finches when he came up with the theory of everything. Mm-hmm. It had nothing to do with with humans. And there, there's this one thing that they do that I've noticed is that. Instead of explaining things, they say billions of years ago, mm-hmm. billions of years ago. And then everybody just kind of goes, oh, it's so old. That's, that's <laughs> probably what happened. Uh, we weren't there, you know? Yeah. And then they'll show you, like, artist rendered drawings. And being an artist, I know that when you do an illustration, someone's like, hey, make, make that look more like an ape. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and, um, and I'm not trying to give an agenda. This is just my personal belief. I, I just think it's all made up. I just think we don't know. Like dinosaurs, like what about dinosaurs though? Like where they used to say, when you first grew up, all dinosaurs look like uh, lizards pretty much, right? Now dinosaurs are known to have feathers, (laughs) you know? So like now we're told, oh yeah, the ancestor of a T-Rex is a chicken. (laughs) You know what I mean? The thing is that um, you can't figure out what something evolved into by its bones. You don't know. You can't, you can't. You can't put the bones back together and make them hump and then make a baby and watch that baby. You know what I mean? Like, it's just these estimated guesses. They're like, oh, well, this bone was next to this bone. So that means that these things probably were the same. It's just estimated guesses by people who want grants. There's this one guy that if if you're really interested and you don't mind the Christian rhetoric, there's a guy named Dr. William Lane Craig. He debates like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and all them on the problem of evil and, and um, the cause and effect of the universe. And it is amazing. It, it's basically what changed my mind about evolution. And I was like, wow, this guy makes really good arguments. And he's not arguing faith, and he's not arguing, you know, supernatural things that happen to people, that the reason why they believe. He's arguing science. Hmm. He's saying that if you're saying that there's a Big Bang then that means there's a cause for the universe. And something can't come from nothing if there's not a cause for it. And he just makes a great argument, and it blew my mind, and I was just like, oh, okay, uh, I understand what you're saying, and I, I see that as a valid point. You know what I mean? So do you, so, do you subscribe to the idea... Wait a minute, so... Okay, so how do I say? How old is the Earth to you then? Like, if if there's no evolution, it's like I'm not I'm not actually debating. I don't want to. I'm not trying to debate you. I just wanted to like I'm I'm basically here just to pick your mind because I like I like learning different ideas. So I believe there is science to show that the the universe is extremely old, 
and that I do believe that it's probably millions of billions of years old. Okay. But, but I, yo, I'm not a creation of creation scientist that thinks it's like 6,000 years old and okay. that we walked with dinosaurs and, and all that crazy stuff. I can't argue that stuff. Okay. I can't argue Noah's Ark. I can't argue any of that stuff. I don't care. The only thing <laughs> I do care about is that there is an argument for a creator and a design of the universe. That's what I care about. That's you think the only God, thing I care about. Do you think like God's a scientist then? And do you think God works through evolution or do you think God just kind of makes things appear? I kind of see God as a disembodied mind. An all-powerful disembodied mind that had no beginning and no end. That's how I kind of see God. Yeah. As like us floating, you know, like the super us. Because he's, I mean, I guess we're made in his image or whatever. But this thing that was alone in the universe and just made the universe as like a designer. And as a painter, I'm, and, and you're a painter too, you make something out of nothing all the time. But you're making something. There's not, there has to, when they talk about nothingness in the universe, they can't actually say nothingness because there's gases and dust and, and vacuums. And so it's not nothingness. There's a force, there's a fuel, but something has to ignite that fuel. And the reason why I started thinking about these ideals is because I listened to, uh, what's the guy in the wheelchair? Stephen Hawkins. Stephen Hawkins is a universe when he was, he was talking about how the universe came to be, and he was saying, picture a hole and a shovel, and the dirt from the shovel is the universe, and the hole is the Big Bang. But never once did he talk about who was digging that hole. Never once. He never ever went into like why there was a person digging the hole. Do you ever get into like Brian Greene and the multiverse? and The multiverse. There's no... I mean, even though I do believe in God, there's no way I could just believe that he only made us. Yeah. We'd be very ignorant to think that. Do you, you know what I mean? there's a bunch of aliens out there created by God, which I totally... I believe there's a bunch of aliens. I don't know if we're created by God, but I do believe, definitely believe there's a bunch of aliens out I there. Have, I, I can tell you this. I have no idea, but it would be awesome if there was. It'd be great. It'd be great. <laughs> I don't know if they're coming here, but there's just like... There's so many... There's so much like... Um, expansion of our knowledge and and what is out there in the universe, like what we call the universe. Like you said, there's like some 400 billion galaxies, 400 billion galaxies. So that means like our one galaxy has so much potential for other planets, just like billions of stars and just our galaxy alone. I mean, the only, the only thing that's scary about the whole alien thing to me is that these clubs, these people we were talking about before we got onto this, ontological question is that they could have anything land and say these guys made and the whole world would follow it yeah anything for a little while at least and if you think about that they could they could get rid of everything and they could make you follow anything and that's scary that's what's scary to me is because every time i listen to coast to coast because i love listening to those fringe stuff and and all that yeah. I always think to myself when I, they're always talking about these benevolent aliens that even though they probe you and do all these weird <laughs> things to you, that they're, they're here to save us and all that. And it just, I just think to myself, what if they're not here to save us? Exactly. So it, it's a, it's a, it's a scary thought that, that 
the government or whoever, the powers that be, could just make anything land and say, these people read you. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and there's so much wild technology coming out right now. And the and the, the crazy stuff is that there's probably even more. Like anything I don't know if you follow like Boston Dynamics and because they're funded by DARPA and they create all these Oh yeah. Yeah, they create oh, these yeah. amazing robots right now. Oh my god. It's like the future is now, man. The future is beginning. I mean like the whole sci fi future is beginning now. It's fucking wild. I did an interview a while back and they were asking me what I thought about all the technology and all the stuff and I basically said the same thing. I said, you know what? We are living in Blade Runner. We are Yeah, it's just beginning. It's just all kinds of technology in the same shitty buildings. <laughs> 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 yeah because i think like i said i have a i have a son that's a year and a half old and i i'm so envious i'm kind of envious and scared at the same time of what the future would provide for yeah. him i'm hoping that you know the crazy people in power don't ruin everything for us because it's pretty damn close to that right now um but it's like if if they can just maintain like a livable environment and let technology flourish my son's going to have some incredibly fucking odd things around. I mean, yeah, it is going to be Blade Runner. It's going to be things where back in, I'll be like, in my day, we didn't have robots to clean up our room, son. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's a crazy time we're living in. It's an exciting time, I think. It is. It is. It, I mean, it's exciting with all the tragedies and stuff that are happening. And it just seems like it's more and more every day, doesn't it? Yeah, I know. Like, that's what they... they the common idea right now is that crime is on the rise, violence is on the rise, but it's actually much lower than it's ever been. Like, what's his name? Steven Pinker. I don't know if you ever read any of his books, but he's really amazing. And he has a whole book about how, despite what you see on the news and despite what, might, what you might think, this is the safest time to live in ever in history. Even with all the wars, these wars are actually less deadly than wars in the past. They're just publicized yeah. more. Yeah, that's the thing, is that they want to keep you scared because they control you if you're scared. Drew, I don't, I don't even have cable anymore because of that crap. I don't <laughs> want to see that all the time, you know? Me neither. I gave up the uh, the big three news stations there, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. I went through all three of them, and I realized they're all full of shit. They're all full of shit. They're all the same. They're all the, if, you want, if you want a conspiracy theory to look up, look up the Rothschilds. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't. I don't know much about them, but just the little bits I've read, they're incredibly powerful, and uh, seem like they, they got their hands on a lot. World. They rule our world. I'm sorry that we got off on the anthological. Uh, we were talking about art. <laughs> no, this is. I like to get into the the art side of people, but also learning like just okay. So we're talking about like masons. We're talking about secret governments. You know, whatever else. Cor I mean. If you didn't tell me about these things, I wouldn't have known that that three-headed uh, crab thing, <laughs> what, what's this called again? Jab Jabalon. Yeah. I wouldn't have known that was from the Masons. So now I know, and other people that listen to it and see that know, and they understand your artwork more. Do you get it? It's like, it's like a kind of like a picking, at, picking things out of your mind to find out more about and appreciate your artwork more. Okay, cool. Yeah. So tell me about the Rothschilds. <laughs> Well, basically, let's just say this. The Rothschilds, they own everything. And as, I don't know if you're familiar with the term prison planet. Yeah. Or cattle to them. So here, here it is. The Rothschilds, family or 
originating in Frankfurt, Germany, established during World War II, the Europe- European banking dynasty. And everybody from Prescott Bush to the King of England has been a part of it. It says that they were elevated to British uh, nobility at the request of Queen Victoria. Um, they basically owned the bank dynasties at that time. Uh, during the 1800s, the Rothschild family is believed to have possessed by far largest private fortune in the world. So they pretty much own everything. Did they help create the Federal Reserve Bank as well? Yes, they helped create the Federal Reserve Bank. Um, here it is. The first member of the family was known to use the name Rothschild, Isaac Elchin Rothschild. He was born in 1577. The name means Red Shield or Red Star. Oh. Basically, he was from Frankfurt, Germany. He would he was basically born in the ghetto in Frankfurt, and basically they from there they just went on to buy and own everything. They're good business people. Now they're. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they're just excellent business people, though. That's the thing. That's a bad part. So it's like, do we demonize these people, or are they just excellent business people? And and but we fear we fear them because they're so powerful. You know, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and then you then you have you have things like Bilderberg that happen behind closed doors yes. when you get shot. You try to ask, and my opinion is that's probably the Rothschild. And and saying that the Bilderberg group is the ones who start wars and end wars and put people in power. You know, when I, the first time I started to realize that there was something wrong with this country, there's a, there's a video on YouTube. You can see it yourself. It's Ronald Reagan addressing the nation. And behind him is the uh, owner of Viacom. And Ronald Reagan, the most powerful man in the universe at that time, the guy behind him, Ronald Reagan looks behind him and he gives him a wrap it up symbol. You know, like where you like twist your finger, like wrap, and he says, wrap it up to him. And Ronald Reagan gets off the pulpit like that. I was like, okay, now I know that the president isn't the all-powerful man. It's whoever's behind the president. And I heard somebody say that America is no longer a country. It's a corporation. Mm-hmm. It is. And, and, and I totally believe that now. It is. Look at you can't get money out of politics. Everybody, we have this big thing of uh, legal bribery now. I mean, that's all it is. Like campaign contributions. Well, campaign contributions come from an assortment of different corporations. My grandpa used to tell me that all politicians were cook. If you if you look at the Kennedys, and I know people love JFK, but they made their money on bootlegging. Yeah, <laughs> they they came to power from thieves and crooks. Yeah, and that's who we have running our country. And that's just the sad truth about it. And they wear their little compass in the square and they talk, you know, and they have their little secret meetings and they take, they take care of our country when we elected them to be public servants. Yeah. Not, and that's the thing that drives me crazy about politics. And I usually don't talk about politics online or, or anything because I have a way different opinion than most people. But we elected them to be public servants. You know what he's supposed to be in there for and our government is supposed to be in there for? To make sure that the roads are good and that the trash is picked up and that there's no unemployment and crime is down. Not to be on the Oscars and, and go <laughs> yeah. on Letterman. And so I don't want you to be a celebrity. Fix the potholes in my road. I don't care. You're a freaking public servant who was elected by us. But that's not the way it is anymore. They are rock stars. And they, they are becoming celebrities. And that scares me because that, if you look at history, 
every empire falls into for after 200 years, every single empire. And from Rome to Nicodemus to, to um, all of them, they, they fall every 200 years. And that's where we're at. We're at that 200 year mark. And when our public servants start becoming celebrities, they become kings and we become paupers. That's what happens. That's what's happening right now. Yep. Well, man, hey, it's been awesome talking to you, man. And uh, thanks, thanks again for, for doing this. I really appreciate it. No problem. I hope I didn't get too uh, political or, or talk about God or any of that stuff too much. No, this is a podcast. This is what great, what's great about podcasts. You can put out all kinds of different information. Definitely, man. That's awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're doing great work, man. I can't wait to see uh, what comes next. All right. Thanks, brother.